Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we really talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we have a super fun and unique guest today. Dr. Jennifer Barr is a naturopath, and she's the founder and chief medical officer of Resilience Naturopathic, a practice devoted to making pans and pandas a thing of the past and homeopathy the medicine of the future. And we should just pause and say pans and pandas, um, pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome and pandas, pediatric acute neuropsychiatric disorders associated with streptococcus. Okay mouthfuls. So <laughs> Dr. Jennifer Barr, her commitment stems from her personal experience as a child who would have been diagnosed with PANS had she been born 20 years later than she was. Her life's work is dedicated to bringing awareness to PANS and PANDAS and teaching the world about the healing power of homeopathy and for changing the outcome for children and families that are suffering. Dr. Barr is a graduate of Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine, as well as the University of Maryland, where she earned her BS in physiology and neurobiology. She also proudly served the U.S. Navy as an air Arabic linguist, which I feel like we could do a whole podcast on. That is so fascinating. Um, so Dr. Barr, welcome. We're so happy to have you. I'm really happy to be here. So, and I reached out to you originally, I think it bears weight to say is because I've had a number of patients that we have shared now who are really enjoying the work that they do with you. And so already we know that homeopathy can fit into a larger program and that it can be really helpful in places where conventional or, you know, certainly I'm doing Ayurveda and functional medicine, but mm -hmm. a lot of other treatments, it, homeopathy can go places other treatments can't go. So we're really lucky to have you aboard today. And um, let's start talking about homeopathy and these pediatric autoimmune encephalitic type of uh, diseases and syndromes and disorders. And let's just start with you. You started out studying neurobiology in undergraduate and then went into the military and then defense intelligence, like not yeah. like seems like the diametrical opposite of naturopathic school. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. No, I, I was a little all over the place. So I actually originally joined the Navy when I decided I didn't want to be a chemical engineering major at Ohio State University because I, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I just know I don't want to do this. So I found something that was completely the opposite in the, the Navy. And I wanted to be near the coast. I didn't want to end up in the middle of nowhere in a desert somewhere. Um, and mm -hmm. so I joined the Navy. And that's how I ended up becoming an Arabic linguist because it was basically the exact opposite of becoming a, an engineer. And while I, I went to my undergrad at University of Maryland while I was in the Navy, so I did both simultaneously, uh, and I intended to become a doctor with my studies. Like once I joined the Navy, something clicked and I said, okay, I want to become a, a physician. And I was doing my undergrad in that in physiology and neurobiology for my pre-med, basically uh, instruction. And it was through my experience where as, I, as you said in my introduction, I was likely a child who had PANS mm -hmm. and I'd been diagnosed with depression and had a lot of rage and all sorts of, you know, anxiety issues that when I was little, but I finally got officially diagnosed with depression when I was 16. And then later ended up getting diagnosed while I was still in the Navy with bipolar disorder uh, mm. when I was about to get out of the Navy. And I know I was still like my senior year of college and my last six months of time in the military ended up getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that sort of shifted things. It made me stop and pause because I was aware that the medications had made me significantly worse when I was given them when I was 16. Uh, again, not, not surprising considering that like when you look back at all of my history that I likely actually had PANS and I was given a dose that makes PANS kids a lot worse. And then the medication that I was given for bipolar disorder also just made me feel like dull, flat, you know, just a fraction of myself. And so my intention had always been to go into to medicine. And I was interested in psychiatry because of my history. And my, I have a brother who also likely had PANS and seeing how the medications affected us and everything. I was, was wanting to go into medicine to then find another way. And so my getting that diagnosis really made me like screech to a halt for a minute. And that's why I went on to another four years with uh, in defense intelligence to give myself just like a little bit more time to figure things out because it was stunning to get that diagnosis because that to me at the time before I had a really strong understanding of what mental health conditions really mean and like what's really underlying all of them that I was just like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm like crazy, crazy apparently because this label got slapped on me and there's no way I could become a doctor with this label that got slapped on me. And so I just had to stop and like evaluate myself. 
fortunately, you know, sanity reigned and I was able to recognize that I was, while I was given this label, this label didn't define who I was or how I operated in the world necessarily. And that I was for somebody with this really unstable label on me was actually quite a stable person and able to continue and maintain my job and maintain my security clearance and all of those things. And so I decided to go back to looking at the medicine uh, career path that I was choosing, but I really wanted to focus a lot more on ways that could help people beyond the medications because the medications were helpful in some ways, but really harmful in other ways. And I had a lot of side effects, including my thyroid getting destroyed and all just sorts of things where I just wasn't myself anymore on medications. And so I was trying to figure out if I was going to just go into to medicine, do my residency, and then travel the world to sort of piece together you know, other traditions and natural therapies to help mitigate the side effects or reduce the need for psychiatric medications. And I totally just stumbled on naturopathic medicine, you know, having lived in on the East coast and spent most of my time in the military and the government and everything. We, I didn't, there wasn't a lot of naturopathic doctors out there. So I didn't even know that they existed. Uh, and so when I saw an article written by an ND, I was just so flabbergasted. I thought it was somebody who made it up and that they were just trying to get some credibility that they hadn't actually earned. And so I Googled what's an ND and got taken to uh, Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine and I'm reading through it and I'm going, oh my gosh, the thing I'm trying to put together over the next decade of my life is here already exists in one program where it's combining conventional and natural therapies. Amazing. So why, why am I doing anything else? So that's sort of how I went from that background of being in the military and an, an Arabic linguist and in intelligence to becoming a naturopathic doctor. Amazing. And then how did you find, can you talk to us about how you found homeopathy? Yeah. So homeopathy was not something that I had also heard of. And in fact, when I first found out what homeopathy was and learned a little bit more about it in my first year, my first quarter actually at naturopathic medical school, I almost quit because homeopathy uses really, really dilute substances. They're single substances found in nature, but they're so dilute that they are dilute beyond what's called Avogadro's number, which until recently, in the last over a decade, we thought meant that there was nothing there. It was before we really understood nanoparticles and, and had the, the technology to find like, to see it on smaller scales. So I started in this program where they were having a required part of the education to be to learn about this medicine where you're basically giving people nothing mm -hmm. to try and make them better. And I was like, you know, all of my alarm bells went off. I was like, this is nonsense. I can't believe that this is a required part of this program. And if this program requires this, this puts the entire program into question for me about mm -hmm. how valid it is. I talked to some people, like some mentors that I trusted their opinion and decided to take the good with the bad and recognize that I could just focus on the things that made sense to me and my physiology and neurobiology brain and set aside the other things and accept that this doesn't have to take away from all of the other things that do make sense and that are good and valid. And unfortunately, I tried a lot of those things and they didn't really help me all, all that much. They helped a little bit, but didn't actually ever get to the point that I could reduce uh, medications or really reduce any of the side effects of the medications. And so I had also, I was a little bit older. I was in my late twenties and I was talking to my psychiatrist um, at the VA and asking what my options were if I wanted to have children someday and medications for bipolar disorder are, are generally not um, able to be taken in pregnancy because they can cause really significant damage to the fetus or potentially even fetal death. And so the psychiatrist told me if I wanted to have children, my options were to get ECT, so shock therapy, electroconvulsive therapy, or adopt. And I said, well, that sounds ridiculous that my option is ECT because I have been a stable person who has been able to keep a security clearance and keep a job and I'm in medical school and I am I had a 4.0 at the time and was doing really great. And so I had that primed that my options to have a child were basically to destroy my brain a little bit. And I went to a conference where a, a naturopathic doctor who specialized in homeopathy for bipolar disorder was presenting and had a lot of cases that were really, he was having a lot of success with. So because of the fact that this was my options were adoption or shock therapy, I was, I thought, you know what? I may as well give this a try because the other things that I had tried already in the naturopathic realm weren't really cutting it. And I didn't like the, the conventional options. And, and my thought was, well, this is nonsense. So, but so is the ECT recommendation. So if I try this and it doesn't work, 
I can just go back to the medications. I can start looking at adoption, you know, whatever it is that I need to do. Um, and so, oh, I'm so grateful that I did because it ended up being the most powerful medicine that I've ever used. It, when I would take it and I, I did start off when I was on medication still, uh, I was not the best patient. I pretty quickly weaned off because I was like, well, how do I know what's doing what if I'm on this medication that's suppressing everything and I'm taking this remedy, you're saying it's making things better. I don't see that it's changing anything. So I pretty quickly went off of my medication and not recommended because it put me into a tailspin into a really bad space. And I was very fortunate that I was actually responding to the remedy. And when I started to go into a tailspin, I needed another dose and it pulled me out of it really quickly because I'm also fortunately a really fast responder. Mm -hmm. Um, So it pulled me out of it faster than any of the medications that I'd ever ever been put on for, you know, an episode or prior. And it did so without making me feel so like dull and flat and colorless, like Mm -hmm. the medications made me feel. So that's how I got to homeopathy. And of course, once I realized what it was capable of doing, I had to dive in head first. And so I was that that person that was doing all sorts of extracurricular homeopathy learning and going in and doing clinic shifts before I was even a clinical student. So I could observe and learn and see more and just dove in head first once I saw what it was capable of doing. I still struggle with it sometimes because of the fact that it's such a small dose. I'm, I feel better now that we know that there are nanoparticles that are formed. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, mm-hmm. today, but I feel a little bit better that we're getting, as we're getting more and more information about how homeopathy might actually work. And I still have a challenge with it sometimes because it, there's still that part of my brain, but I can't deny what I saw personally. And then what I see with literally thousands of people that we work with um, at, at Resilience Naturopathic. So here I, here I am. Here you are. It's an incredible story. It really is. Talk to us about the history of homeopathy. You know, we, you, you've talked about using very small dilutions, like, and as we were prepping for this call, you and I had talked about how, when I learned Ayurveda 20 years ago, I was told that, um, the principle of like increases like, or opposites quiet each other. That was part of Ayurveda. And, uh, my teacher, Vasant Lad was said at one point, like homeopathy, it even comes from, even that comes from Ayurveda and Ayush, which is how the ministry of India thinks about integrative medicine is it includes homeopathy in the H in Ayush. It's Ayurveda, mm-hmm. yoga, Unani, Siddha medicine, and homeopathy. So it is a big part of Indian medicine. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about what it is and, and kind of the modern history of it. Yeah. So homeopathy was first discovered actually by a German physician in the late 1700s. He was practicing back at that time with, you know, the the primary forms of treatment were things like arsenic and mercury, bloodletting. So lots of really kind of not so great treatments that we recognize now. He had the insight to recognize that he was harming people as much as he was hurting them and decided to close his practice for a while. He was a um, really well-trained chemist and also uh, spoke several languages. And so he made money to support his family by translating medical texts for several years. Mm -hmm. And through those translations, he picked up on some ideas, one of which was from Hippocrates, which is a little bit different than what you talk about with with Ayurveda, where like like increasing like or the opposites quelling each other. With homeopathy, it's actually like cures like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so something that and that's, that's a, a principle that came from Hippocrates that he had read with, with like cures like. Uh, and then later he read another, he was translating a, a materia medica, so like a list of, of uh, things that a, a particular plant can be used for. And it was for cinchona bark, and which was one thing that was really used a lot for malaria uh, back in the day and can still actually be used for malaria. And the person who wrote this particular materia medica was saying that the reason that cinchona bark was useful in malaria was because of its bitter properties and having translated lots and lots of things and being a chemist, he knew that there were substances that were far more bitter than cinchona, but were not effective in malaria. And so he being a scientist decided to take some and see what happened. And he took it and he got the same symptoms that he'd had when he had malaria a couple of times previously, actually. And so he put those two and two together, like, wait a minute, I just took this medicine that gave me symptoms of, like malaria. Mm-hmm. And Hippocrates has this principle of like cures like and this, I mean, we know this medicine is useful for malaria, but a healthy person who takes it gets symptoms of malaria. That's where things came from. So it's that principle of giving something to somebody who if given to a healthy person could cause symptoms similar to what mm-hmm. somebody is experiencing in an unhealthy state. And so that's where homeopathy really came from. 
he took this and got really excited about it and started to experiment on other substances to find out what symptoms they caused and see if it really added up with something that he knew it could be used to treat. And it, sure enough, it, it fleshed out that what, whatever he gave, you know, belladonna to somebody, it caused symptoms that could also be useful in treating. Um, similar even with like Mercurius, the, the um, homeopathic remedy name for mercury caused symptoms very similar that it was actually effective for, for treating. And so he did all of these experiments. He called them provings. It's, or we call them provings now that came from the German proofrung, which basically means experiment or test. Um, and so he was testing all of these substances and then decided to go back into clinical practice, give it a whirl, see how it went with treating people and found that it was actually quite effective. It was through those testing though, that he decided to start diluting it more and more because as you can probably tell from all of the things that I just said, he was using really toxic substances and giving them to healthy people. And so he wanted to reduce the impacts on the people who were taking them for these tests to make sure that he wasn't harming them and found that they were still able to trigger a response in people, but without causing as much harm. And then found when he started back in practice that when he gave those same more dilute versions, that they actually had a better response for people where it didn't cause the primary action, which is what we're not really wanting to get with the, the remedy. We're wanting to get that secondary response that the body has to the primary action. So it basically gave that rebound secondary response without a whole lot of that primary response, um, which would be putting the same symptoms in into a person that they are already experiencing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's the way you're describing it. It's almost like a vaccine where, you know, you don't with a non-live vaccine, you're giving yeah. a piece so that the body can recognize it and then respond to it's kind of almost like role playing in psychotherapy where, you know, you're not facing your mother who was mean to you. You're facing mm -hmm. a therapist who's acting like your mother so that you can practice the response. And that way mm -hmm. you can train for when the true challenge is there. Is that right? Those are some good analogies. It's not exactly how it works, but it sort of makes sense to people when you use those comparisons. So especially the vaccine comparison, it, it, people can pick up on that a little bit more. It's not exactly the same mechanism. Another, an example that can sometimes make sense to folks is like coffee. So if you're drinking coffee, the primary action is going to be more focus, more attention, more heightened awareness. Whereas the secondary action, which is what uh, would be like that you're a little bit more tired, you're maybe you know sleeping more because you're getting that secondary rebound response after the initial oh. primary oh. response. Uh -huh. And so when you give a homeopathic remedy to somebody, so you could give homeopathic coffee to somebody who was already without having had any caffeine in that more agitated, elevated, sleepless, hyper-focused state. And so you give them a tiny dose where it nudges them to have a little bit more of that response, but then you get that secondary action. And by giving those smaller doses, we don't give a ton of that primary response. We give a little bit. So it's almost not noticeable. Whereas we get the, the, the big secondary response. So interesting. That's so, you know, it's really interesting. Also thinking about the vaccines, we had Dr. Howard Weiner, who's an MS doc on a couple of months ago. And one of the th things he was talking about was actually like vaccines for MS or vaccines for Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. the idea that you can do a nasal spray that's going to somehow instigate an immune response, mm -hmm. obviously not the first step, but as you're talking about the second step where people can be mm -hmm. more resilient to those conditions. Mm -hmm. it's There's a lot of talk lately about this concept of hormesis where you give like a small adjutant. It's kind of a, that, you know, similar to what's happening with homeopathy. We give a small adjutant to get that rebound secondary response for the body to help with the adaptive response. So yeah. Fascinating. And this guy, yeah. his name, his, this was Hahnemann. Yeah, Samuel Hahnemann is it was the original founder of homeopathy. So yeah, he ended up finding a lot of really great success, got a lot of followers and taught the practice of homeopathy to a lot of people. And it was actually a really prominent form of medicine. It's it's huge in India, as you mentioned. That's probably where it's the most utilized by the, the greatest number of people. And most of the research is coming out of India too. Hmm. But it was actually the a really predominant form of medicine, even in the United States. Uh, until the 1800s, late late 1800s or so, because it was just useful, accessible, and effective. Um, and so it wasn't until the American Medical Association was formed in response, actually, to the oldest medical association in the country, which is the American Institute of Homeopathy. And the American Medical Association actually formed in response to homeopathy's presence and, and uh, use in the country. And they honestly had better 
political savvy. <laughs> and so <they're, laughs> that, that's part of what shifted so that rather than, you know, 50% of the uh, population getting uh, treated by homeopaths, that homeopathy started to go further uh, down the, you know, hidden path, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. where now it's fortunately, we're seeing a bit of a resurgence in that. I, mean, I think you and I actually talked that the place you got your training, one of the places you got training was actually named after Samuel Hahnemann. It was a homeopathy mm -hmm. school that stopped teaching homeopathy at some point. Yep. Central. So Central Philadelphia is where I did my original nursing training and I was accepted into the Han into Hahnemann University and then Drexel brought, bought them in that year. So I, my degree and my grad, I graduated from Drexel, but I, mm -hmm. that was Hahnemann that where I went. Yeah. Where I applied to. It's so interesting. There's, and, and we had talked about this a little bit before, but um, you know, for people wanting to understand that history of American medicine, there's a great book by Paul Starr with two R's originally published in 1984 called the social transformation of American medicine. And he really talks about how that time in the 1700s where conventional or whatever conventional was at the day, you know, that became the American medical association conventional medicine was so behind and that there wasn't a lot people could really do except for things like mercury, et cetera. And so they didn't have a lot to do. They didn't have a lot to offer. And so the fact that somebody else was much more, that there were other uh, fields like chiropractic or homeopathy mm -hmm. that were more successful in treatment, it was a real competition for patients. Yeah. And so in terms of really trying to prove themselves, it took time, it took effort. And, and so they had to become much more politically savvy in order to stake their claim. And then we talked about how medical schools, you know, in, in the late 1800s, there was John Hopkins, which started to focus on research. But for the most part, medical training was something like you interned and did the laundry of a medical doctor for three months, and then you hung your shingle and called yourself a medical doctor. And it was the Flexner report in 1910. Uh, Abraham Flexner had Carnegie money and went around the country and everybody said, oh, Carnegie money and opened their doors and opened their closets and opened their, you know, their classrooms or whatever they were doing, thinking that Carnegie was going to give them money. Meanwhile, Abraham Flexner was really saying, you're illegitimate, you're illegitimate, you're illegitimate. And so it closed about 90% of the schools in the US. It closed out homeopathy, chiropractic and other systems yeah. of medicine. And it really closed out women and people of color to the field of medicine. Big shift. Okay. So homeopathy, oldest medical institution in the United States of America. If we yeah. want to talk about going original, we're going to go homeopathy. <laughs> right. So I know that like when I say homeopathy, the medicine of the future, it's a little bit backwards because it's actually the medicine of the past and it's got a much longer standing history. And the, the thing that's great about homeopathy too, is the, the way that I practice right now is exactly mm -hmm. how Samuel Hahnemann practice. It's, it's a medicine that is based in a, a law of nature that is observable mm -hmm. and repeatable and it, it doesn't change over time. So the way like Samuel Hahnemann could come and join my practice and he would know how I'm practicing. He would be able to fit right in and wow. they would, he wouldn't look at us in any way and be like, what the heck are you doing? Because homeopathy has stood the test of time uh, for over 200 years now that it, it doesn't need to change because it's based in the law of nature and that's just how it works. So what do training programs look like now? Like people so, who are trained as homeopaths, what kind of what's their training been? So I'm most familiar, obviously, with the training for a naturopathic doctor, because that's what I've done. But there are some homeopathy schools for people who don't have medical degrees, because you don't actually have to have a medical degree to be a homeopath. Mm -hmm. And I, I recognize the value in that for many, many things. And I'm going to give a huge caveat that I don't think it is best to see a non-medically trained homeopath for a really intense chronic disease, especially something like pans or pandas, who, that is incredibly basically people are incredibly sensitive to everything around them. And they can even be incredibly sensitive to those tiny doses, those nanoparticles that are found in homeopathic remedies. And so there is great value for general health working with a lay homeopath and can be complicated, especially if there's lots of things going on. So um, the training for a naturopathic doctor includes homeopathy training and it's still really beneficial to work with somebody who has done gone above and above beyond to try and get a little bit more education in homeopathy, because as you probably are aware, like anytime you're going to, you know, basic medical program, you've got to learn lots of things. It's like a, a mile wide and a six inches deep. Right. Mm -hmm. And so with homeopathy being an entire system of medicine that can function both with other things, like you mentioned early on, but also can function exclusively on its own that you really need to go that deeper level of understanding. And so I don't know exactly how long the programs are for lay homeopaths and everything 
it varies, you know, from, from school to school. So I, I, I don't really know exactly for those things, but in, in naturopathic medical schools, you get, I don't remember how many hours, but a, an extensive amount of, of training in homeopathy. And how many different remedies are there in homeopathy? There are in the, the homeopathic pharmacopoeia of the United States, which is what regulates the homeopathic remedies that are regular, that go through the FDA. So they're not approved by the FDA, but they are managed and regulated by the FDA. There's over a thousand oh um, that are available. If you, and that's just ones that have been approved by the homeopathic pharmacopoeia of the United States. So every country has their own regulating system. And, and so some countries have less than that. Um, some countries have more. So there's literally thousands of possibilities for things that you could use as a homeopathic remedy. And then let's dive in a little bit to the research and then we'll kind of pivot to do pans and pandas. Yeah. I mean, there's like lots of research that you can look at for efficacy. The research I'm most interested in, um, as I alluded to earlier, is that is the research on how it works, um, because I can see that it works. And so I'm not as concerned about that. I'm more interested in the the how. And so back in, uh, I think it was 2010 was the first time that the research was published related to the exploration of nanoparticles. Mm-hmm. And what they had found was with this, I think it was scanning electron mic- microscopy, I think that's what they used, um, that they were able to actually identify that nanoparticles of the original substance were found in these ultra dilute um, preparations of, you know, belladonna, silica, these plants, animals, and mineral sources. That's where, where remedies are generally made from. The way that homeopathic remedies are made made a difference though. So the way that they're made is by putting, like, let's say we're doing the centesimal scale. So these are the ones that are going to say like 60, 30C, 200C. You'll put a drop of the original substance that into like a, a tincture of something into 99 drops of uh, water and then you shake it up. So basically what Hahnemann did and what he describes in the Organon of Medicine is t- um, pounding the vial against a Bible. So something that's like giving it really good agitation. So they've got machines that can do it now. You can use it against your, your hands. So you do one drop into the 99 drops of water, then you agitate it vigorously. And then you take one drop from that bottle and put it into another 99 drops of water. So it's serial dilution. So we're further diluting from each vial we're going getting it into a further further one and you do that six different times to make a 60 potency what they found is that that agitation process is vital Hahnemann had already recognized that if there was no agitation in the dilution it didn't work you had to have that that succussion is what he called it without the succussion there wasn't the same nearly the same nanoparticle formation so something about the um, shear forces that are caused when you're doing those those um, agitation creates nanoparticles of the original substance. And so they've taken it a little further than to say, okay, that's great. We know that there's actually something here. This isn't nothing like we thought that there's nanoparticles. What's happening on that cellular level then? And so with, again, the, the microscopy that we have now, we're able to see that those nanoparticles are actually able to bind at the cellular level and cause adaptive change within the cell. So there's there's visible changes that you can see when those nanoparticles bind and are, are taken in by the cell. That's the research that we have so far. We don't know exactly how those adaptive changes that come in, the, that the cell um, undertakes in response to the homeopathic medicine. We don't know how that leads to such broad reaching um, improvements because that's one thing that homeopathy is really known for is that it's it's a nudge in the right direction. So it's not forcing the biochemistry like conventional medications or supplements or herbs. It's just nudging the body to heal itself. And so when we heal, we heal as a whole person. And so we don't know how this binding of the cell leads to changes in mood, changes in sleep, changes in digestion, changes in pain but it does. And so I'm really looking forward to even further research so that we can understand a little bit more about how those adaptive changes lead to such broad reaching shifts Mm -hmm. in the state of the health of the person taking it. Talk to us about like, so, you know, this all sounds well and good. If you've got a tummy ache or a headache, I'll just play, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, devil's advocate here. Okay. But when we're talking about like pediatric autoimmune encephalitis or pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, Talk to us about those pans and pandas. Talk to us about those conditions, the symptoms that you see and how homeopathy, like how in the world could that possibly help? 
So pandas and pandas, I, we sort of lump them together. Um, pandas is, is essentially a subset of pans, but it's more specific and it's got a lot more research behind it. Pandas is actually uh, officially a disorder, whereas pans is just a syndrome. So it's a collection of symptoms. So some people will get a little bit touchy about putting them together, but they realistically have a, essentially the same presentation. So pandas is caused by strep. Pans could be caused by anything that can trigger an immune response. So that could be a virus. It could be other bacteria. It could be mold. It could be environmental toxins. Uh, it could be even allergens that are just really having a, a, an improper misdirected immune response. So what happens with pans or pandas? And when, when I talk about things, I'm going to talk mostly about pandas when it comes to like research and our understanding of how it works, just because it's what's been researched more. What is believed to happen is that our bodies create this process called molecular mimicry where the body is coming in and trying to defend itself from the infection. And so the infection comes in and says, wait, I don't really want to be you know, wiped out here. So it puts proteins on the cell surface to make it look similar to the cell. Um, and eventually the immune system picks up on it. Like I always say that it's like, like wearing a Dr. Bar mask. And so like it's, you can tell pretty quickly that this is a Dr. Bar mask. This isn't actually Dr. Bar, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we broaden the attack so we can get the masks, um, but that means that we're also going to probably get a little bit of Dr. Barr too. And so that's where the autoimmune component comes in, where we start attacking our own cells. And so what this happens to these kiddos in response to an infection that's present or something that triggers an inflammatory response, um, an immune, immune response. And so what it leads to is a lot of neuropsychiatric symptoms. So the, the predominant presentation that's looked at is the onset of OCD and tics. Um, or it could also be a avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So, which is really, to me, it's just an, a, a specific presentation of OCD because avoidant restrictive food intake disorder generally is involved with children who are not wanting to restrict their eating because of how they look. So not like a typical anorexia presentation because it's not like with a focus on weight or body dysmorphia, but more so if I eat this food, it will kill me. I can't, or I can't eat well because I'll choke. And so it's more about an, an intrusive thought and as a compulsion to help control that intrusive thought. These kids can also have lots of other changes too, though. So it's not just the OCD and uh, tics. It's also intense separation anxiety, a lot of fears, rage that can really get out of control and get to be quite dangerous, fluctuations in mood. There's also physical changes, a lot of intense sleep. These kids will, will go from being able to sleep by themselves in their room to now they have to sleep with their parents or can't sleep at all. Children who are fully potty trained having regressions where they're wetting themselves or having a lot of urinary frequency or what we call some, um, phantom wetness where they feel like they're wet even though they're not and they need to constantly wipe themselves. Uh, changes in handwriting, behavioral regressions, regressions in cognitive skills too, cognitive functioning, specifically reading comprehension and math skills can become problematic. And some kids will even get to the point where they're having like dyslexia type symptoms, but they come and go when they're having this trigger from the, the mm. immune activation. And so one of the reasons that homeopathy is really effective here is homeopathy addresses susceptibility. Ultimately, like we, we're still defining what that means and what that looks like on that cellular level, right? But homeopathy addresses susceptibility to these types of reactions. And the reason this is so helpful in these kids is because if you think about it, you know, when we go and we just try to target, oh, the inflammation and the bug that's coming at us, like if we try to just kill the strep or kill the mycoplasma or kill the Lyme or, you know, get rid of all the mold in the house and detox the, the mold from the body. The reality is these are things that exist in our world and not everybody has the same reaction, right? Like, so you, I, I don't know that I had a susceptibility to strep. I don't have a susceptibility to mold or a high susceptibility to mold, but I did to mycoplasma. And I, you know, after working with these kids for so long and, and recognizing that I could see so much of myself and my childhood in them. And then talking to my mom, that's when I realized, oh, wait, I actually had all of this. I had the intrusive thoughts. I had the intense fears. I definitely had the rage. Four or five doors needed to be replaced in my parents' house when we moved when I was 13, because I had kicked holes in them some really intense violent aggression towards my brothers in particular as well, um, like beyond normal sibling stuff. So I have that susceptibility to mycoplasma in particular, because this all got significantly worse after I got a, a mycoplasma infection. And, but I, I don't have some of the other triggers, right? So I get mycoplasma and I can't read anymore. And I become really anxious and I become aggressive and violent. 
you get mycoplasma and you probably get an upper respiratory infection and take some antibiotics and, you know, within a few days you're feeling better. So I have the susceptibility to this misdirected immune response and to these particular way of having a misdirected immune response, whereas you would have a susceptibility to the typical presentation. And so homeopathy actually addresses that different susceptibility and the way that we have a different response. And the reason it's so vital for these kiddos is because if we're just in the place where we're looking at the trigger, we're trying to find all of the possible triggers and, and combat the triggers, we, we don't live in a world where we can completely avoid them. And so if we don't address that susceptibility and heal that susceptibility, every time that they come into in contact with a new trigger, um, and the triggers are, they, they broaden, they expand. And that's why I say like pandas, you can't really say it's just pandas. I've never seen a kid who is only susceptible to strep. It always expands to lots of other things. So it's, it's really, it's pans that they have anything that can trigger an immune response can cause a flare of these symptoms. And so once we actually address the susceptibility with homeopathy through those gentle nudges and helping the body to heal itself, we actually see kids able to get off all of their medications and supplements, get strep and get a typical reaction to strep, get mycoplasma and get the typical response to mycoplasma. I actually had that happen since I healed yes. with homeopathy where I got another mycoplasma infection and I just got typical symptoms. I just got walking pneumonia. So that's really why it's so vital for these kids is because it's not the trigger. It's not the strep. It's the susceptibility to having this misdirected atypical immune response in exposure to it. And unless, like I said, we want to live in a bubble, we have to address the susceptibility. If we have any hopes to be able to get off of these things and live a stable, typical way. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. We want to keep our podcast commercial free and continue growing our educational offerings. So here's our itty bitty plug to join us on our mission. One easy way is to buy the supplements that you're already buying through our Fullscript or Wellevate accounts. Fullscript and Wellevate offer high quality supplements. They take good care in their shipping and they vet their brands well. We give everybody a 15% discount across the board because we all need some help in this world. Please go to Neuravena health.com to our store page to sign up with Fullscript or Wellevate to support us and our larger mission. We are so thankful for your support. When you're treating a kid, let's say you've got kid A who has a diagnosis of pandas and let's say you've got kid B who has got a diagnosis of pandas yep. and let's say they're both 10-year-old girls, are you picking the same remedies? How do you put a Absolutely not. Yeah, and so like how do you pick it? Yeah. So we spend a long time with our interviews. We spend about three hours when we're doing an intake because we really need to understand all of the nuances about how somebody experiences something. And we need to understand them as a whole person. Um, because like I said earlier, homeopathy is that nudge to heal and that addressing susceptibility. And when we heal, we can't help but heal as a whole person because everything is connected. So we really spend a long time talking to them or their parents to get a really good understanding of all of their symptoms, all of their history, exactly how they're experiencing it. Because while there's a whole lot of symptoms that a pans or pandas kid could experience, I'm sure you've seen this in your practice. If you've seen one kid with pans, you've seen one kid with pans. Like this one's going to be really anxious to go to school. And this one's not, you know, this one's going to have rage because of their OCD. It's going to lead to rage and that they're going to have a bright red face and they're going to destroy the house. And then they come out of like the fugue state and then they don't remember anything, or they're going to be their OCD is going to cause them to be really depressed and scared and timid. And so the way that people are responding and like the way that they have their specific reactions matters because we, we have to match a homeopathic medicine that is the most similar to the symptoms that they're presenting globally so that it can actually get that secondary response that we talked about. So we need it to be as close to what we're seeing in order to, to get that that really positive secondary response of healing. And so it's never going to be exactly the same. Like even if it's like the same diagnosis, they're going to have little nuances that are different in how they present. And so we have to match exactly how they're experiencing it with uh, the appropriate homeopathic medicine for their case as a whole. So, and it's, it's not like there's just one medicine that they would be given and they just need to take that forever. Um, it can change and adjust throughout time. So, you know, your symptoms will change and especially as you're healing, things will move in one direction or another. And so we have to move and make sure that the remedy continues to match the symptoms that are still present. Um, and a lot of times we'll see people go backwards too. It's almost like a lot of the medications and supplements that we, we use they cover things up, but they don't actually reverse things and because they're not addressing that susceptibility. And so 
we'll see old symptoms coming back that we thought we had healed or we thought had just you know, disappeared on their own, but either were palliated or suppressed with um, medications or supplements or whatever other treatments, or they were essentially suppressed by the progression of the condition. And so we'll sometimes move backwards through it and see old symptoms come up so that we can actually heal them using the homeopathy and then put them truly in the past. So it's kind of like trying to match paint colors, like on a day when it's like sunny and then cloudy and then stormy mm-hmm. and then it's nighttime, you know, the paint that's on the wall is this is the same paint, but it looks different in all the different mm-hmm. lights. And what homeopathy is doing is finding out of these 1000 plus remedies, the exact match for the light that's on the wall at that time yes. in order to get the body to move. And then as the light changes, as the day changes, as the time changes, you pick different remedies to match. Is that right? That's, I've never heard an analogy like that. It sounds pretty good. Um, sounds pretty. <laughs> but yeah, you basically, you have to meet somebody where they're at. And so, you know, like if they're like, let's say we get somebody to the place where they are healing. And so we're seeing like a symptom that they didn't used to have, like a rash come up. We were going to have to potentially adjust the remedy to address the rash. Or there could also be the reality is that they could have a brand new exposure that we their, their body hadn't reacted to yet. So we didn't know what their susceptibility was to this particular exposure. Um, puberty is a big time when we can see kids really shift and change because puberty can really throw pans and pandas kids for a loop. And so we always have to adjust to like how they're responding to their environment, how they're responding to the, you know, their own healing process and moving through the, the, you know, going backwards through symptoms and, and everything versus also, like I said, getting a, a response to something that's changed in their environment too. And so if you're trying to pick a remedy for rage, like what mm-hmm. is like, I can't wrap my mind around what you would find in the plant animal mineral kingdom that would yeah. be rage. I think the most important thing is that we are never going to say, I want to target rage because like if we get nothing else to go away, if we can get the rage to go away, I'll be happy. We always have to focus on the totality of everything because we do have to look at, at both what happens, what remedy or what particular you know plant, mineral, or animal substance could cause rage that looks like this. We also need to look at everything else. That said, when I'm asking somebody about their rage, I say, okay, tell me a story and tell me what happened. And I want to know what the trigger was. I want to know exactly what a person did. I want to know what they look like. Did their face get red? If they got red, was it their entire face or was it just one cheek? Was it, was there like white anywhere around there? Did they get sweaty or did they not get sweaty? When they got, when they had the rage, are they cursing and saying really mean things or are they destructive or are they violent? Like what exactly is happening in the rage? Um, How long does it tend to last? How quickly does it come on? What sort of things ameliorate the rage? What calms them down? Are there any things that come alongside it? Because, you know, some are there headaches that come with rage or stomach aches that come with rage? So I want to know everything around it so that I can find something that matches as closely as possible the rage that somebody's having. You can can include things. Examples of remedies that like might address some of those symptoms. Yeah. So one that is is relatively well known, especially in the pans and pandas community, that can be helpful for rage is belladonna. And so belladonna is going to be more useful when it can cause, when there's like a lot of heat associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, belladonna can cause a red face and dilated pupils generally comes along with like very intense, very fast rage. Destructive is a really common part and some violence can come along with it too. Um, can also tend to calm down really relatively quickly and then just move on like nothing happened versus Nux vomica, which is another remedy that um, another one made from a plant that can be really useful in anger and rage. This is not going to be one that's going to have a lot of heat, though. In fact, Nux vomica oftentimes comes with a lot more coldness that it causes in the body. And and rages can also come on relatively quickly, um, not usually quite as violent or as destructive, can have a lot of cursing associated with it and yelling. There can be some destruction as well. And a lot more sensitivity to like lights and sounds and odors and things in the environment uh, can be really more prominent in um, Nux vomica. They can be prominent in uh, Belladonna too, which is again, why we have to look at the totality of everything because there can be some similarities. There's tons and tons of remedies. Another one that I think of, it's like a, an animal source is a remedy I had to take at one point for range is tarantula. Uh, so it's made from the tarantula venom and it's actually... Um, another very violent, very destructive remedy, but this one tends to actually be calmed by listening to music with really intense drum beats. And that was for, was definitely true for me, like a weird thing you wouldn't necessarily think of, 
but can be really useful in pinpointing a homeopathic medicine that's really effective. That's amazing. And are there different, like for India versus the United States, are there different, do people use different remedies because we obviously have different environments, different climates? So they've got this, like a lot of the same remedies that they have in their pharmacopoeia that we have. And so it's always going to be focused on the person and the experience that they're having, not necessarily the environment that they're in. Um, So they're going to use a lot of like a lot of really similar remedies, most likely for similar presentations. How long does it take for to expect results? Like how long does it take? If you have a new panda patient, you know, at what point would you expect change or at what point would you call it to say like, it does it homeopathy ever not work? It's like anything in medicine and health that nothing is hundred percent effective. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. the results that we see are about 75 to 80% of people actually respond really well to homeopathic medicines and improve um, and get to the point of, of recovery. Um, and so it's not a straight line though. And it does take time because we're giving the body those gentle nudges to actually heal itself. So it's repairing the biochemistry. It's repairing the hormone imbalances. It's repairing this immune system rather than just supporting it or forcing it biochemically. And so what we tend to see is two to three steps forward and one step back and another two to three steps forward and one step back. I always compare it to like hiking a mountain and remind people that even when you are going downhill on a mountain, you're still making progress toward that ultimate goal of getting to the peak that you're hiking to. And so it, it does take time. So most people are with us uh, at Resilience Naturopathic at least for a, two years on average before they start to uh, potentially be able to go to more as needed follow-ups where they're not needing to take a remedy regularly, not needing to follow up regularly to catch those one steps back where we need to make an adjustment to continue the, the healing process. So about, about two years. That said, it's give or take. For me, it took five. So part of that is, you know, I was older and I had taken lots of medications and lots of different supplements. And I had a lot of stressors in my life because I was in medical school and um, in practice and all of those things. So it took five years to get to full recovery where, you know, I don't have the episodes or flares like I used to have. I mean, I've been uh, with my husband now for our nine years and he's never seen an episode or a flare or anything like that. So it took quite some time to get there. And a lot of ups and downs, a lot of ups and downs in the process. So homeopathy is not necessarily for the faint of heart. It is not like pushing an elevator or like riding an elevator where you push a button and just zoom to the top or even riding an escalator where it takes time. But, you know, it's always just straight up. It's it's a lot of ups and downs, but it works really effectively. And it gets to the point where people, like I said, they can get off of the medications, they can get off of the supplements, and they can have exposure to things that they're just going to be exposed to from being in school, being in the world, and not have a flare of symptoms. Once people get to that point, like once you're stable, do you need like touch-ups periodically? Some people, what happens with most people is that they continue to use homeopathy just for the everything in life because they see how effective it is. Most people will still maintain a relationship with their homeopath uh, just for, you know, things as they come and go. But do people need touch-ups for um, maintaining their non-reactivity and like pan symptoms? No, we don't see that that really comes up when we actually get people to the place of full recovery, that we don't see pan symptoms recur and flare. We just see that they might need support through a stressful school situation or a cold that they got having, you know, typical cold type symptoms rather than a flare as a result of the cold. And how does homeopathy fit in with a larger medical program, like in terms of diet, lifestyle, trauma resolution, like how does, you know, or even um, treatments like IVIG or pharmaceuticals or guanfacine or medications, like how do all those things fit together? Yeah. So we always recommend, at least at at my practice, that we recommend that nobody make any changes when they're first getting started with a homeopathic remedy, because a lot of these medications are helpful at, you know, keeping things at bay, whether they're palliating or suppressing. And we don't want to put anybody into crisis. We want to give the body every chance it has to actually do some of the healing. And so you can use them together. And then as we see healing and see a lot of really strong evidence of, of positive response and healing progress being made with the homeopathic remedies, we will help give guidance to to start reducing some of those medications and supplements um, that are holding people steady, but might not be as needed anymore. Um, And so 
we tend to go very low and slow because we don't, again, want to put anybody into crisis and recognize that like there's support coming from both ways and we need the body to adjust to handling things on their own without this extra support coming in. So it takes time to get off of them, but you can actually do them together. Occasionally people will start some of the other therapies um, in the process. And we find that for some people it can help. And for some people it's not as helpful because for some people we are, uh, the people that it's helpful for tend to be because their body is in such a state of crisis that their body's having a hard time having a, a strong response to the homeopathic remedies or like it's, it's minimal because they're just in such a bad state. So if we give them a, like essentially giving them a break by using some palliative or suppressive medications that the body can have a little bit more of energy to put toward this response that we're getting from the homeopathy. That's not the more common reaction that we see. A lot of times what happens more is when we add other things in, we create a more complex picture because basically like we're, our bodies are not just responding to the susceptibility and the illness itself. It's responding to that plus the impacts of the medication or the supplement um, because everything causes changes in the body, right? And so we can talk to, we call them side effects or we call them adverse effects or whatever, but there's the medicine and the body's response to the medicine that we're now also having to deal with in addition to that just general susceptibility and the underlying imbalance that's there as a result of that susceptibility. So it can sometimes actually slow things down a little bit and complicate things to create a more complex picture because we just have more that the body is trying to deal with in those times. And then what about, you know, diet and lifestyle? Like, can you eat, you know, shitty gas station food every day all day and <laughs> no homeopathy and like no success <laughs> no absolutely not so homeopathy there's there's certain things that can't treat right so it can't make a crappy diet and lifestyle good for you um you still have to eat healthy food because you have to have the basic foundations for your body to work from because you know it can't help the biochemical processes work more effectively if you're not giving the basic foundational things that they need to work in the first place so and homeopathy, it can help with functional nutritional deficiencies. So like if you're getting enough of the nutrient, but the body's not using it appropriately, homeopathy is very effective in helping with mm-hmm. that. It can't help with frank deficiencies. So if you're just not even getting enough of something, like it can't cure scurvy if you're just not getting enough vitamin C, right? <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> um, so no, you at, like homeopathy still, you have to take care of your, you still have to exercise, you still have to sleep, you still have to make sure you're getting a good balance in your diet and you know not in like toxic abusive abusive relationships so you mentioned trauma earlier and homeopathy can absolutely help with trauma um, because it, we still have very different ways that we respond to trauma you know we don't all have like I had trauma now I have this happening um, so it can help with the susceptibility to the response to trauma and sometimes it's still really effective to get trauma therapy in addition. In fact, I find that when you're doing homeopathy and trauma therapy together, it just, it's, it um, is profound, the results that you can see. So homeopathy cannot make somebody invincible. It can't make uh-huh. it so that like, you know, you're superhuman. You can't hack yourself with homeopathy because homeopathy is just going to make you the healthiest, best version of yourself that you can be, but it's not going to turn somebody who is by nature a shy person into an outgoing extrovert. You know, you're still going to be who you are. Um, You're just going to be the healthy version of who you are. Sounds pretty good. So if parents are out there and listening to this and want to try homeopathy, like, are there bad homeopaths out there? I feel like, would I ask this of like a regular, of like a neurologist? And, you know, I think most of us know that the answer is like, yes, there's terrible neurologists out there and there's great neurologists out there. Yes. Like, can you get a bad homeopath? You can absolutely. There's bad, you know, there's, there's people who are bad homeopaths, just like there's people who are bad neurologists. Like you said, there are different approaches that, that some people have, have tried to sort of, they tried to hack homeopathy because homeopathy is hard to do. You have to really understand the condition that you're treating. So you can find those specifics that are unique to that person. And then also know these thousands of medicines so you can identify and match them together. It's even more complicated when you're dealing with something like, you know, complex chronic illness, like PANS, because it's rare that somebody's going to come to homeopathy without other things already having tried too. So you also need to understand the medications and the supplements and all those things, which is why I think it's so important for something really complex, especially if you've got a multitude of things that you're using that you work with somebody who has medical training and understands those things. So 
even if you, even if we didn't have to worry about those things, there are different styles and different approaches to homeopathy. And the approach that I've been talking about is classical Hahnemannian homeopathy. Like I said, early on, Samuel Hahnemann could come and join my practice and fit right in. And, you know, I don't know if the parents would necessarily love him and his snarky personality, but um, he would, the way he practices would fit right in and they would be seamless. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are other people who have tried to sort of tweak the way homeopathy is practiced. So you, you could get somebody who's got a completely different style, who's not actually following, um, you know, with home- classical homeopathic medicine, it's a single medicine at a time, um, the single best fit. So you, they'll find some people who use combination products or give multiple remedies at a time or, or who make a plan rather than meeting the person where they're at in the moment. So those can all make a, make a difference. And with something as complex as PANS uh, and other neurological conditions, you could end up with somebody who is a really fantastic general homeopath but doesn't understand the nuances of this particular symptom mm. condition. And so it's, it's not just about finding the best medicine. It's about knowing how to manage it as well. Like I said, these kids are really, really sensitive, including to homeopathic medicines. And so they can have a greater tendency to have more of a stir up of their symptoms um, with that primary response, even at those tiny doses, because they're just so sensitive that the tiny doses can actually cause a little bit more of that primary agitation response before we get the secondary healing response. And so it's really important to work with somebody who knows how the condition itself works. So they know how to manage the medicines, when to make adjustments, what kind of adjustments to make, knowing what is actually unique or characteristic in a case so that they know how to make a recommendation for a remedy. That is really where the key is. I can't tell you how many times we've gotten people who've come to us after seeing other homeopaths and they made good remedy selections. They just managed it poorly because they didn't really understand pans or pandas. Interesting. So if you try, if you're out there listening and you try homeopathy and it goes very poorly, it doesn't mean you should throw out homeopathy as an option for your condition. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's true for like lots, anything that's a chronic health condition. So if people are listening and it's not, you know, if it's, if it's MS or epilepsy, you know, any other neurological condition or anything that's, you know, if it's, you know, chronic menstrual problems, anything that's like got a lot of complexity to it, it's probably not that the homeopathy isn't going to work for you. It's probably that you're just not working with a person who understands the condition and how to manage it well enough. And so if, if homeopathy with one person doesn't work, it is definitely a good idea to consider working with somebody else and to ask them how well they really understand how much success they've had using homeopathy for this particular condition. And if they understand that like certain nuances of it can be really beneficial. Is homeopathy ever covered by insurance? Some people it is. I've got people who um, have gotten homeopathy and my visits with me covered by insurance. That's probably in part because I'm a a licensed naturopathic doctor, which is again, a reason to work with a medical provider. That Mm -hmm. said, a lot of us, like we at this point don't do any work with insurance companies at my practice because we work with people globally. Mm -hmm. And so we're just not able to provide anything to um, to get insurance reimbursement. Some people still manage to though, you know, even though we don't do anything to facilitate it, some people still do. If you're working with a lay homeopath, most insurance companies aren't going to give okay. you any um, coverage. And then for people to find out more information about homeopathy, do you have any resources to share with us like books or magazines or societies or websites? Yeah. So um, if you're specifically interested in learning more about homeopathy for pans and pandas, the group that I run and manage uh, in on Facebook is probably your best resource. There's about 14,000 people in it right now, almost 15,000. And we have many course and like lots to like tons and tons and tons of educational videos to teach people everything they need to know about pans, pandas and homeopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, some people have started calling it like having a doctor in their pocket and I'm in, in there helping people out and, and engaging with people on a regular basis too. To learn more about homeopathy in general, some books that I recommend, there's Beyond Flat Earth Medicine by Tim Dooley. Um, He's an MD, ND. That's a really short book. And I think he even has a free PDF online that you can find um, Mm -hmm. to learn some absolute basics about homeopathy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Impossible Cure by Amy Lansky is also a good book to read. As far as organizations or or that you can learn more, the National Center for Homeopathy is a good place to learn more about homeopathy um, in general, both for like for people who are just interested as a lay person or want to learn more and there's ways to connect with professionals there too. And they do send out a quarterly magazine for members as well that you can read a little bit more about homeopathy and they've got lots of educational series there too. Wonderful. Is there anything else that we should mention today about homeopathy? 
Oh my gosh. There's help me out. Please. One of those things I could literally spend hours and hours and hours and hours talking about and only scratch the surface. And so I'm uh-huh. sure there's plenty of things that I should have mentioned, but there's none that comes immediately to mind as it relates to the basics for people without overwhelming them about homeopathy for pans and pandas. I go into lots and lots of details in the Facebook group. So it's homeopathy for pans and pandas on uh, Facebook. And then my website's resiliencenaturopathic.com that you can uh, see a little bit less of the information there. Cause we also don't want to overwhelm people on that site. Yeah. Um, and for anybody who's not on Facebook, we also have a YouTube channel. So it's resilience naturopathic um, on the YouTube channel. You can just search for it. Lots, right. of, lots of good videos there too. And are you taking new patients? Me personally? No, but I have a team. There are 16 of us actually, like the demand is so um, big that there are 16 of us. They're all handpicked and trained by me and we all collaborate and work together. So you get a team of up to 16 people on your case. Um, And we, so my team is still taking new clients right now. uh, And we do work with people virtually exclusively. We've got people that we work with all over the, the world. So location doesn't matter, but yeah. So you get me indirectly when you work with my team. Awesome. Well, we are so lucky to have you here with us today. And this is Dr. Jennifer Barr. I want to thank everybody here for listening. We've got lots of ways to continue the conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can get more information from and about Dr. Barr at her website that we mentioned, that she mentioned, resiliencenaturopathic.com and at the Facebook group. Please be sure to share the show widely with all your friends. And we welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we are committed committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.